0: All right, Children's Church, you may be dismissed. Maybe headed downstairs. We are in Romans chapter 6. This is a wonderful opportunity. Again, new books. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that we're doing, too, is is as we go through Romans, as we go through some different things that are very impactful, theological, um, we try to get some books that explain some of the... um, Explain some of the topics of what we are talking about so that way some of the implications, because we can't just give you all the implications that just flow out of this. We would be stuck in Romans 5 and 6 for uh, a couple of years if we tried to do that and move on. Um, I say that because some of the seven points that you got in your notes, I could do a message on each one of those uh I usually spend all my evenings and mornings taking stuff out of the notes, so that way we have nine pages or under. And I kept adding to these notes, and I was like, oh, I got to say this, I got to say this. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I got to page 12, and I was like, oh, I got to start editing out. Uh, so some of these books are really good for your study and go along with some of the verses that I put in your notes. I don't put in those I put some of those verses again to read, not so that we, I quote them during the service, but so you can go back and understand the full thinking of the verses that we're studying in Romans. So you're missing so much more of the thoughts if you don't go back and read some of those verses with those points. And so this is Jay Packer's book, um, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it really speaks to what we're going through in Romans uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And it deals with what we should be doing with the parking lot party. And, And that's what's beautiful about the parking lot party and what's so different of what we're doing is the parking lot party is not about putting on and doing a big work for our community. The purpose is not to do a big work For the community. We love the community, and we're we're doing something that yes, it is for the community, but that's not the purpose, and that's not the point. And we've been pulling our attention back to this, and that is that we're sharing. It's an opportunity to share the Redeemer that we have, and to be bold and say, This is, you know, we love you because of the love of God for us in saving us from our sins. So we don't do this big work to do a big work. Uh, we do it so we can say that God loves us because he redeemed us from our sin and that we, we, have, we can repent and come before him and be saved. And so we want to share that. That's what's different about on the 25th is we're going to come and be praying and talk about the boldness that we have to share the good news With our community, and we want to do that as well. Another thing is, is we have uh, Susan uh, Ilja, um, and uh, she has come forward for membership. Uh, A couple weeks ago, she met with some of our elders. She's met with me. Uh, We've talked with her, and we've and uh, we're recommending her for uh, the right hand of fellowship to join our membership of our church. And uh, we want to encourage you to get to know her. She sits over here, and uh, good old Swedish. Swede, and so I love her name. Uh, Ilja means Lily. Um, and so I think your middle name is Lily, too, isn't it? Yeah, no, <laughs> but we're last day we were joking about it, it's uh, Lily Lily, but uh, so we were talking about that. But uh, get to know her, and uh, so that, that way um, you can know why we recommend her to the fellowship of the body. And membership, and so, um, and so she loves the Lord. Great testimony of what God has been doing in her life. Uh, sadly, her husband's at home, so she'll run real quick. She may not stay and talk real long, um, but she'll run back to take care of her husband, who has dementia and back problems, so can't sit through the service. Um, you may remember he used to, to uh, lean up against the chair in the, on the floor and that was so he could stay here and listen because it didn't hurt his back. And so uh, just love getting to know them and they love our fellowship. And so I encourage you to extend the right hand of fellowship to them. And we'll do that in the next week or so. We'll bring her up and, and pray with her and whatnot. Well, let's pray and uh, get into uh, Romans chapter 6. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 11 and uh, then but we'll specifically be looking at verses 5 through 11 so let's pray lord we thank you for our body we thank you for the way that you have blessed us encouraged us the way that you have brought us into fellowship with one another not because we like each other um, and yes we do like each other but you've brought us together because we love you we're learning to worship you Um, Lord to just really to focus on you and in doing that it has spurred us on in love and good deeds to the body. Lord I pray that as we read your word that we'd be encouraged by what you've done for us and that we'd be reminded and to understand and to know who we truly are and may that impact us in our walk with you. So Lord we pray that for the direction of your word that your spirit would give it to us plainly, and to uh, overcome uh, the lack of grace in my speaking, (laughs) and Lord, that we might be encouraged by your words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 6, we're going to read it, and then we're going to give some introduction to remind us of some of the important things that are here, and then we'll jump into actually explaining it verse by verse. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then, or will you continue in sin, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we who have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death we died... He died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We really see an amazing breaking apart about what does it mean to be united with Christ, uh, really to be sanctified positionally we see that God has is, uh, is been taking us through Romans to show us our salvation, to show us that what salvation is from our sin, that we've been justified or declared right in God's eyes, not based on a work that we did, but based on a work that Christ has done for us. And when he saves us, for all those that have put their faith and trust in Christ, for all that God has saved, and now we have a new identity. We have this... Position that God has put us in. And now, positionally, we are different. We've been positionally sanctified. That means that we've been declared right, and He's given us this new power to live our new life. And also, He's going to move into progressive sanctification that we are positionally saved, but then He's changing us to resemble that new identity. That we now live, and we talked a little bit about that in the whole idea or illustration of making of a pickle, and some of you guys have talked about a lot that this week, and so we, and it's been brought to my attention. But what we're talking about here is this new position that we have and the importance of it. Verse five is actually uh, an example of verses six through eight. And also the first part of 5 is 6 through 8. And then it breaks down. The second part of verse 5 is a breakdown of 9 through 10. Then with a command in verse 11 of what we should do. And so that's kind of the breakdown of the verse. The importance of why is it so important to know this new identity that we have or this new life that we have with Christ? And and the reality is this, is sometimes we struggle with, with different things in our life, with sin, with choices, with problems that we're dealing with. We really struggle. And we say, you know, I really feel trapped by sin, or I feel trapped by feelings and emotions and bad things, and I'm feeling trapped with all these different things around us. And this passage offers real help for you. It also gives us great instruction to help others who feel trapped like this. For Christians to be free from the power of sin, they really need to understand and know this new fundamental truth. We have a lot of problems with church today because one of the reasons we struggle with being trapped in walking in sin is because back in the day there was this real Fight over legalism. And one of the problems was they really wanted to feel okay about living the life that they live in their pursuit of earthly things. And one of the things that really began to pop up, which was an old problem that began to resurface in church, was this idea of antinomianism. This really is a great text that deals with this topic of antinomianism. That simply is this, is that you don't need to follow God's law or God's commands. They're just really guidelines or they're good moral things. And a lot of times we've seen people say, well, we don't need to follow the Old Testament, right? There's a big movement. Like that's not, that's not for us. We just need to follow the New Testament, well, some of the people that in the last 10, 15 years that have been pushing for us to not even know the Old Testament and just know the New Testament are now saying that they don't even need to follow the commands in the New Testament because we, God loves all of us and he saves all of us. And so that's kind of this idea, this birth of antinomianism. And it's this really idea that there's this third type of believer, or there's this third type of person. We know that there's this old self, this this person that's represented by Adam, who's this living in sin, this old man. And then there's this new man that has been saved, who's been brought into this new household, living with Christ. But really, there's a third man who, who can live in both worlds and lives under that. And what Paul and what God is trying to show us is that there isn't really any third man. There's one or the other. So this morning, I want you to see these two types of standing people and why it's really, it's a bad fit to try to fit your life into this third category, that there are a lot of people that are trying to espouse this. Um, there's person number one is a real learner Uh, there are two types of people that we see not only in our church but in our community and there there's one that's a real learner there's he's genuinely listening uh, to what's being said Uh, and even if it's not comfortable it doesn't matter to him he's going to listen he wants to learn he wants to know he is humble he is considerate he's he's thoughtful to truthful things he focuses on what's true even if it it's uncomfortable to him he's always evaluating himself he even asks questions to clarify because he views his redemption or his change uh, in his life this movement towards change and this redemption of his life he sees it as very important He doesn't want, this person, the outcome is this person really doesn't want to miss what God is trying to do and where God wants him to go. He's very particular about that. This person, you know, he doesn't want to miss who is trying and trying to risk it all just to miss where God wants him to go. That's the first person. Person number two is the exact opposite could really care less about the truth, cares more about how he feels. And because of that, this individual is very defensive and argumentative. He's proud, doesn't want to listen in his defensiveness and argumentative. In other words, this person, is, he doesn't care what, what anybody else is trying to say. He's quick to anger, and he, even in the tone of his voice, and the look of his face and the movement of his body is very—the movement of his body is very clear. That even he's, and even in his words, he's—he doesn't care how much somebody talks clearly, definitively, um, is very balanced, is very helpful. Very, his criticism is actually for, to be geared towards helpfulness. He says it's not welcome. This second person. So he shuts the conversation down and he goes away unchanged. So we have one person that is changing and the other person that is not changed. This is a very real application of what we see these two types of people. There's, the Bible explains in John 10.10, Jesus said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life more abundantly. Jesus came to be the one that bears the burden and the load of the change. He says, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy and is light. But a lot of people don't like that burden. They want to steer clear from that burden. They don't want to listen to that. They say, you know what? I want to do what I want to do. Let me be alone. And they keep doing their own thing. There's those two type of people. And the reality is is that the gospel, as we look in the introduction here, is is that the gospel is truly life-changing and liberating. It really separates and helps to help us understand these two types of people. Helps us to understand that there is an old man That's represented by Adam. And that there's this new life, this new man that's in Christ, this new household of faith that we're living in God's kingdom and not the old kingdom, that we're planted and growing in this new life that's represented by Christ. He is our power. He is our life. He is giving us this abundance. And so we see this two separation. But the gospel helps us to understand this and to live this life-changing and liberating life. And the reality is this, when we think of life-changing and liberating is this, is that when the gospel is applied, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to give us, you know, because he was the go-between to stand in and take all of God's wrath for our sin, Christ took all that for us. That's great news. And the death that he died, we also died to that old life, so we can be then resurrected into this new life with God. You have a new identity. The gospel, the really the life-changing aspect and the liberating aspect is we're liberated from one life to a new life with a new identity. So don't label yourself according to your past life. The reality is we have a new identity. That's what the gospel life is all about. The gospel life is so liberating and life-changing because we have this new identity. The second thing is that that Christ is better than the idols what tempted you in your old life. You're not losing anything when you're brought into this new life with Christ. The gospel life that's life-changing and liberating, those old idols don't have anything to offer you because They only bring death, but they only steal and destroy. Satan is always about stealing and destroying something in your life. The reality is, is that God is giving you this new life, a life of growth. Christ is better, always going to be better. Christ is empowering you to bear fruit. He's giving you the energy and the ability to produce fruit. He is literally producing fruit for you. The old life, you have to try to do everything on your own. But the gospel life is so life-changing and liberating because Christ is empowering you. That's what the gospel life is all about. It also is comprehending God's love and grace to you, and God's grace and love is motivating you, and it's giving you the energy to enable you to continue to grow and to love others. That's what the gospel life, that's why when we say the gospel life is life-changing and liberating, that we're saying all of that. To illustrate what we're talking about, how God has, has liberated us through the gospel and given us a new life, it's life-changing, it's liberating from the old life, I want to give you an illustration, a very vivid and true illustration, and there's, two different ones I could read to you. I'm going to read to you about the one of Guam because we have some folks that served in Guam. And and uh, so in 1982, this is a real story. Um, Guam's not very big, so this is amazing. This brings out how amazing this story is. This story is true. It's not a, like a fictional story, but this is a biography of, of a real Uh, a real experience, and something that was really highly unusual. A Japanese soldier came out of the jungle in 1982. He had been living in the jungle for 37 years, since the end of World War II. Why? Because when the news came at the end of the war, he couldn't believe that Japan would ever surrender. And that the war was truly over. He didn't believe it. He couldn't trust it. He couldn't believe it. So he stayed hiding in the jungle, living there for thirty-seven years. The illustration and the thought is: this, is is the question that comes after that? Is for thirty-seven years was he free? Sure. The war had ended. There was no more fighting. Was he free? Sure. He could have come out in 1950 or through 1955 or even 1969. He was completely free on a theological basis or he was completely free on just a a normative basis on the fact of the Declaration, the different news that he heard over that time. He was free. But he didn't consider himself free. He didn't count it free. He believed it to be false. Was he really free? Yes. But was he truly free? No. No, because he stayed in bondage. He was hiding in fear in the jungle. And that helps us to understand, illustrate this two points of the fact that the sinful man, the man the, the, our life under Adam, is not free. We're under bondage. We're under slavery to sin. The life in Christ, this new life in his kingdom, we are free because the war is over. Christ conquered death. Christ is won. But there are those who know that but that are still living in bondage. They live in self-imposed bondage to sin. They're still in the jungle spiritually because they refuse to believe that Christ has truly set them free from their sin. And there's yet we still live that way. There's the old man, the new man. There's the old life, there's the new life. There's the slave to sin, and now... There's a slave to God. Where do you see yourself? There's, there's a couple of really important, as we begin to walk through the points quickly, there's, there's four word choices that you need to understand. or there's four things you really need to know about this text from verses five through 11. You're going to see four if, many times through this, through this passage it's actually written since it's actually better translation is since. it's since all this has happened in the past this is true since we know this from the past then this is what we have so that's important for understanding so when you see the word if it's signifying a fulfilled condition it's signifying since this is true then this also is true so, when we look at the past, we look at the future with certain knowledge, certain truthful knowledge is the idea. And the other thing is important to understand that we're talking about, because of the things in the past, we have this sanctification or this position because of what Christ did for us on the cross and that he died and we identify with his death. And we also identify with his resurrection. So we have this spiritual death and life going on in our life. And one day we will die completely to the flesh, but we'll be raised with him for the rest of eternity. So that's, we're looking forward to that, that physical salvation that one day we will have when we're standing face to face with Christ. But what Paul and what God is giving us here is this spiritual death in life. That's important to understand. So when he says, yeah, you've died with Christ, you're like, wait a minute, I'm still alive. He's talking about your spiritual position that you have. The other thing you need to understand is the use of the word no. No, it's important. It's repeated in verses 1 and 2, and in verses 6, and in verses 9. We're going to see it later on show up in the chapter. The first one in verse 6 is no, and it's talking, it's dealing with Understanding based on personal involvement and experience. It's stealing the first one in verse 6. It's saying, you've personally experienced this, so you know this to be true. You need to understand because this has happened to you. This is true. The second one in verse, I think it's 10. Uh, nope, I'm wrong. Verse 9. We know, it says in verse 9, Actually, it's indicating an absolute positive beyond any possible doubt this is true factually. It's not based on experience, not based on emotion, it's not based on anything. It's based on this is concrete, true. So one is based on experience, the other one is based on truth. So you're going to see that as we progress through the notes. So let's look at this. What's the result of this new position that Christ has given us? Verse 5, it says, For if we've been united with him in his death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The first thing that we see is this, that our union with Christ is the key to overcoming our sin. We've died to sin, and now we are alive with Christ. It's this union, it's this identification that is the most important thing. Sometimes we we focus on that, yeah, we're living in newness of life, but the living in newness of life is solely based on this union. And, And it's what we talked about last week. The most important thing for us to realize and the most powerful thing in our life is to understand, to know more, to meditate on our relationship with Christ. It's this union. It's what God is trying to describe. This new position, it's this new life that you have submerged in Christ. You have a new identity. In short, Paul is expressing a historical fact that happened 2,000 years ago with our union with Christ. To illustrate this point, one theologian put it this way: He went for the first time to Israel, and when he went to Israel, the, the tour guide said, "How many here? This is your first time with Israel in Israel." And a couple of people rose their hands, and this theologian didn't raise his hand. And and he says, "How many of you have been to Israel before?" And and he raised his you know and, and he raised his hand, and then he goes wait a minute, you've never been to Israel, but you've been to Israel. I don't get it. And he goes, well, 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross for my sin, I was there. Because Christ died on the cross for my sins and he rose again. And I was there. He may not have been there physically, but he's recognizing he was there spiritually. And it meant a lot to him. And he's saying that our union with Christ in his death and on the cross and his burial, and he's emphasizing this inseparable, albeit mysterious, union with Christ. We can't be separated from that, is the point in verse 5, which then leads us to verse 6. The idea, as we jump into verse 6, is that this enabling power that we have is not only enabling us, giving us the power to live this new life, but it's helping us to move forward in our new life. I don't know about you, but I like to have a car that's powered, right? You need an engine that has proper power, right? It would be useless to take my big truck and put a moped engine in it. How is that going to move my truck? It won't. But it's also just as useless to have a big engine in your truck and then not to have any gas to keep it moving down the road, right? And what we're seeing is, is that Christ, our identity in Christ, is both of those things. It's both our, our engine that's powerful enough to save us and to put us in this new life, but it's also what keeps us going in our new life. It's important. It's important. We understand that sin is ineffective. Look at verse 6. Look what God is telling us here in verse 6. Not only that, but we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is God telling us here? Basically, he's saying this. When it says brought to nothing... He's telling us that sin is ineffective. It's lost its effectiveness to hold us in this old life. It's lost its effectiveness. This means that the old sinful nature has been rendered ineffective. It's been destroyed. The old man has died and now is unemployed. It doesn't have a job anymore. Sin no longer has a job in causing death in this old man. We've been... Christ died to sin, paid for us, redeemed us, paid for our sin, and has brought us into this new life. And we've identified where our union and our life is hid in that. And now that old man is unemployed. Our new life is over here in Christ. It's no longer effective to hold us captive. It's like, have you ever had anybody try to tie you up with a thread? Like, I'm going to hold you captive. I'm going to put a thread on you. It's like, no, I'm going to, right? Our old life was like ball, chain, duct tape. You know, it was like submerged in death. There's no way that we were going to come out of, we're dead. The new man, sin has lost all of its effectiveness to hold us there. That's what he's saying. This is important for us to understand. The third thing that we see in verse, the last part of verse 6, look what he goes on to say. Not only is it ineffective, it's been brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We understand that we're no longer enslaved by and in service. That word enslaved there literally means that we're no longer slaves and in service to sin. We have a, we have a new life. The position that Christ has given us means that we're not enslaved to that anymore. Our new position in Christ is so important to understand that we don't need to be enslaved or in service to sin anymore. The result is that we don't serve sin. That's why when Paul asked that question, do we continue to sin that grace may abound? He said, no. Don't you know who you're identified with anymore? You no longer have this identity. You're no longer slaves over here. You're no longer in service over here. You have a new life. Could you be imagine, can you maybe imagine being bought as a slave? You're like over here wishing that you could just, I, I wish I, I know this, this master's killing me every day. I'm dead over here with this master. and then to be bought out of slavery to be purchased, and be brought into this new house with this new, all these new tapestry, this new kingdom, this, all these beautiful things, and say, I'm going to continue to go over and serve that one. But yet, you have this new master over here with this new table, with all these new things, with all this freedom, and yet, we still want to serve this one over here. And Paul is saying, hey, our identity, when Christ has done for you, has taken you out of that. You're no longer a slave to sin? It's what he's the whole point. In verse seven, it brings us to this and that we understand that we have a spiritual freedom. Verse seven goes on for, "The one who has died has been set free from sin." A lot of times we think of free as, "I'm free to do whatever I want." The term here, free, means that we've been declared free from something. From the effects of sin. We've been justified. We have been declared right in God's eyes. We've been freed from the effects of sin. We have this spiritual freedom. We're not held captive anymore. And yet, for some reason, we have this idea that it's okay to continue to serve sin and to be a slave to sin, that it's okay to be in that position. I, I like uh, this one theologian put it this way. It's, I think it was Spurgeon. I don't remember if it was Spurgeon quoting somebody else or if it was actually uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce quoting Spurgeon. I can't remember which one. And I, like a dummy, I didn't put it in my notes. I don't even have it written in my notes. But the illustration is this. It's like this, this alive man that's been made alive going up and digging up this dead corpse so he can live with that dead corpse. Yeah. But that's what we do when we keep saying that it's okay to go back to sin. We've been justified. We've been absolved. Do you understand? We've been acquitted of all charges. That's what he means when he says you are free. We've been acquitted. Go live in peace enjoy The fruit of the Spirit. As death absor- dissolved all the claims, so the whole claim of sin, not only to reign into death, but to keep its victims in bondage, has been discharged once for all it's like you know like some of you that have been put into the service in the military you know you sign up right and you go into the military and no longer it's not you don't have a life anymore you're owned you're in the you're in the service of the military they own you until you're discharged right you're discharged from service you hope that you're discharged with honors right But here's the idea. We've been discharged from the effects of sin. That's the idea. Verse 8 is beautiful. And we understand, we need to understand that we have a living future. There's all over the New Testament we see this, this idea of a living future. But in verse 8, Paul went on to say to us and to the, to the church and to us, he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we see this going to the, uh, this is referring back to verse, second half of verse 5. We understand that we have this living feature, this future. So knowing and believing the truth of your present position or sharing in Christ's death is a certain promise of living for the rest of eternity with him. Do you not understand that this new identity that we have, not only does that mean that we're free from all this, but now there's this turn in this reality that we have an eternal future. Death no longer has control of us. That means that life now is eternal with Christ. So why are you focused on what which is dead? Because we have this eternal future with Christ. Right? That's why Paul could say, the life that I now live, I live for Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either one is the same because it's about Christ. We understand that we have this living future. But we live based on the fact that we have a new master. See, this new life, the results of this new life that we have in Christ is that we live based on this new master. We have the old master's gone, the effects of it, everything. And now we have a living master that's not dead, that's alive, that he is living for eternity. That's where our new life is. Look at verse 9. He switches from what we've experienced in our salvation to what we know to be absolute we need to know that's absolutely true. That's not based on our experience, but what is based on truth. And verse nine it says, we know, this is certain, this is not emotional, it's not experiential. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, we will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Dominion, meaning has mastery over him. We have this new fact. We have a new master. Old master's gone. Old master's dead. Old master has no... uh, It's dead. Does that mean that there is no sin in our life? No, the, the, the position, right? Spiritually, positionally, we are in Christ and so the long-term effects of that are gone. But we still have this body that isn't dead. So we need to know that we have this new master, not the old master. It's important. By the way, this type of knowledge is so important. We don't realize that what, what is saying here, this is so vital. By the way, this is not a command. This is just telling us what we know is so vital to our life you know this new master that you've been given? Because the old master is gone. Knowledge is so important. By the way, the word know here is referring to this past action that we see and it has an effect on our present. So this type of knowledge. By the way, Hosea 4, verse 6, tells us the lack of knowledge can destroy our life. He says, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. He's talking about Israel rejecting and knowing God. They knew a bunch of rules. They knew a moral life, but they failed to know God. In fact, in Philippians 4.8, knowing right thinking, we're taught to think right, to know that. And in Colossians 3, we talked about it. Colossians, we read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. But in verse 10, it says, the new man is renewed in the knowledge of God. It says, having put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of Of him that created him. That knowledge of our creator. That knowledge of God. That knowledge renews our ability to grow every day. In fact, 2 Peter 3.18 tells us that we are growing in this knowledge. Growth happens the more we know what is true about God. John Bunyan, who didn't know that I had a quote from John Bunyan, but John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress and the biography on John Bunyan. It's beautiful, by the way. I've read that, the the kids' one. It's beautiful to look at and it's beautiful to read. But John Bunyan, the famed Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote some other books that are just amazing as well, but he wrote this, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy the jeer of his patience, the slight of, the, of his power, and the contempt of his love. Mounts, who taught Greek, was a great Greek theologian. He had a pithy statement talking about sin and our new identity with Christ. He said, For the Christian to choose to sin is the spiritual equivalent. Oh, this was the guy I was talking about. I forgot where this was in my notes. But he says it's the spiritual equivalent of digging up a corpse for fellowship. He says a genuine death to sin means that the entire perspective of the believer has been radically altered. We have a new master. We must live a really we must live really believing we belong to God. Really believing which makes verse 11 so amazing as we get to verse 11 and it says this, it says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you must consider. By the way, do you know that this is the first command in all of Romans from Romans 1 Romans 6, we have now seen the first command. That's important, don't you think? He's given us all this theological knowledge of what salvation is all about. And now he says this, we must really believe we belong to God. We really are dead to sin. It's an exhortation, it's a command to say, this you must truly believe. The word consider, or in some translations reckon, is in the classical Greek. It's used two different ways. It's used in commercial dealings in the sense of evaluating an object's worth and considering a project's gain or loss. He's saying that you must consider this old life that's dead, it's a loss, and that the true worth of the new life that you've been given. That's what we should be considering. Do you wake up considering that? Do you look at the choices you're about to make in your life and consider the true loss and gain of our death to sin and our life in Christ? We must be alive to God. It kind of echoes what he's going to say in Romans 12 when he says, I beseech you to be a living sacrifice. Be alive to God. The second way that this word was used was used in philosophy as the sense of an object, the sense of an object, or a non-emotional reasoning of an object. In other words, the Greek word basically was logizomai. It's where we get the word logic. It's to think logically about something. It's to acknowledge It's the acknowledgement, to acknowledge an act of of something that is already true and has already happened, is is the Greek verb here, to consider. It helps us to understand what, what God wants, that why this new position, this new identity, this union with Christ is so important. God is commanding us to consider that in our life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is also a medical doctor and also a theologian, he said there are six statements that help us to understand what this is not saying. Sometimes our mind goes to, well, what, do, you know, we say, well, what does this really mean? Well, let me help you with this, because this was helpful to me as I was reading through his thick tome of chapter 5 and 6. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he said this whole idea that we need to consider or really believe that we belong to God, that we don't belong to sin and death, he said this, it doesn't mean that it's my duty as a Christian to die to sin. I gotta gotta work at dying to sin. You realize the text here said nothing about duty? It's a fact. We're dead. We have a new identity. Live in that identity. That's the key. Secondly, he said this, it's not a command for me to die to sin. How can I be told to do what has already been done for me? I can't die to sin. I was already dead in sin. I can't die to sin. It's been something that Christ did for me. Thirdly, it does not mean that I'm Uh, that I am to consider or reckon that sin has a force, that whole sin force in me is dead. He's saying it's not that I need to consider that sin is all dead in me as far as physically true, because that's not true. Sin is a force in me, though it is a force whose effective power over me has been broken. It has no power over me. But my flesh is still here. So there I'm still tempted. But it doesn't mean that I can't run to Scripture. I can't run to Christ. I can't focus on my new identity. I live in here. I'm not going to live over here. It's lost its effect. It doesn't mean that sin in me has been eradicated. It doesn't mean that I am dead to sin as long as I am in the progress of gaining mastery over it. That would make the statement refer to something experiential and not based on truth. It would make it more relative based on, instead of truth. It doesn't mean that reckoning myself dead to sin makes me dead to sin. That's backwards. What Paul is saying is, is that because we have died to sin, we do not count on it as true in my life anymore. When sin is tempting you to turn from what God says to do, we're like, well, this is not true. This is true. Have a new life. This is some conclusion statements. The first step in... I even put my... I'm getting so used to putting now. The first step in our growth is counting on God's truth. Truth is counting God's truth. To count as true, that is fact. It means that we have assurance of our salvation, that God did what he did, and we have full assurance because we have this new life. There's full assurance. We have a new identity. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done. We have a new life. We've We've been put onto a new island. Don't... Try to swim over to the old island. You're going to get eaten along the way by all the reef sharks. There's blood in the water. It means that we have this assurance of salvation. The other thing is we have assurance over the victory over death. That looks differently. We have a victory over death because Christ defeated death In our life, when he died on the cross and rose again. We don't see death the same way anymore. The sting of it's gone. Satan holds that over you. If you die, you're never going to experience all these things. But the real thing is is we're going to experience the full life that God has given us. It no longer has this sting of death. The new life that we have in Christ can't be given through anything or anyone else except Christ. The new life is not because you have a great pastor. The new life is not because you have a great counselor. The new life isn't because you sing great songs or no great songs. It's not because of what you can do. It's not because you have all these talented people at church. It's because of our identity in Christ. The power of our new life is our identity. It's not what you have or you can get. That leads to the old life. All focus on what you're missing, what you need, what you can get, how important you need to be, all these different things. You already have everything. It's right here. The key to living, truly living, the Christian life is knowing that we live in God's house. We live in, His, in Him. It's like staring out the window at war and death and decay and saying that's beautiful when you're living in God's house rather than turning around and enjoying that relationship with God. You know the worst thing? The whole idea here is is that when Adam and Eve sinned, when he became our representative, he was pushed out of the garden. He was no longer in that position walking with God. The key to our truly beautiful life in Christ and living a Christian life has nothing to do with how good we are and how many rules we follow. All these different things that we put on ourselves, or or having it all in in the world, it's truly, it's really focusing on where are you where are you living. When somebody like, why well, it's so hard to follow God's command? We talked about this in Sunday school and. And we talk about it's so hard and his burdens are really hard. When you feel like you can't follow God's command, it's truly hard. It's hard to do that. You're saying you're just you're not really living in your relationship with God. You're focusing on the world. You're 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 feeling like you're losing something from the world. No, no, no. Here so many arguments about this or that or what we have or don't have or you know it's like it's ridiculous we live in a relationship with Christ with God and yet we it's like Israel it's like I'm going to give you the land of flowing with milk and honey and yet you're, I'm like oh man but I, I miss the I missed the spices in Egypt at least it was flavorful in Egypt. I mean, come on. right? The spice of life. You know, I mean, at least when I sin, I experience a little spice in my life. And it destroys you. You know, that's eating a ghost pepper. I don't understand what some of those, or a reaper. You guys are ridiculous. All it does is kill your taste buds. But when we experience all this sin that we say, oh, I need a spice in my life, all it does is kill. Your relationship with the Lord. It, it, Real life doesn't happen. That abundant life that, that God wants you to enjoy does not happen. The world doesn't have anything to offer except for death. Uh, we were doing a marriage. I was teaching a marriage seminar one time, and I remember we were around some round tables, you know, because you know, round tables you do a lot of discussion and work out all this stuff. The lady's like, oh yeah, you need there was a there was this lady in her church, and she's like, You need to, you know, come on, you need to spice up your life and you need to do all these things. And she was naming off all these worldly things that all had to do about some selfish stuff. Borderline pornographic. And I'm like, what? I overheard it from another table, got up and went over and I said, that spice of life is going to kill your marriage. She looked at me like, yeah, it's all about pleasure. It has nothing to do about your identity in Christ. It's all about our identity. We live here. We don't live there. The world doesn't tell us how to do things. We live in this house. The secret to a holy life is believing God. Do you consider God right? Or do you consider the world right? Your new position we know that Christ is right. That's where James said if you lack wisdom let him, let you ask God. I mean it's not a coincidence. That when, God, when he says, count it all joy when you face various trials, because we live in a world filled with sin and, and struggle and strife, and it's all against God, and he said, there's going to be trials. Count it joy, because that's God working his life in you out of the world. And he says, it's no coincidence, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. But then he says a caveat, but if you ask God not believing it's the same, the same context here. Not counting his wisdom as truth, but not believing, then don't suppose you'll receive anything from the Lord. When you go over here and say, I'm going to follow this because it's good. I like it. It's spicy. Don't expect a truly holy, productive, abundant life. Because that's not your identity. As we think about the result of our new life it is because of our position of our life. I've described, well, God has described two types of people. Which one are you? See, there's a saying out there saying, you know, it's like your life is more important than God, what God has for you. Your feelings are more important. Your emotions are more important. But the truth of who God is is not that big of a deal. And they've made what God has done for you trivial. And in doing that, there's a lot of people that are still actually living over here. They're not new. They're still living in sin. And you say, the best thing you could ever do is look at what God is saying is true and saying, I have been living here my whole life. I know and I believe that there is a God, but my life is here. And if your life is here, you need to say, I need to respond to Christ and, and be identified in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that way I am here in Christ, in the new life. If you're, if you say, "Well, I identify with this old man," chapter five, that's what it was all about. If you identify with this and you're like, "I'm not all that that you described," or what we have in Christ, this new identity, I don't identify with. I, I I gravitate this way. To the world, then you need to ask yourself: Are you truly saved? And that's the most beautiful thing that you could ask yourself and be truthful in your heart. And, so, and repent and believe in what Christ has done for you and be saved. Don't sit there and say, well, I've gone to church for years and, and sit in your pride and, and sit and, and, and sit there and say, well, I'm, I'm this and I'm that and, and be prideful and, and I don't want to hear it and, and be argumentative and be defensive and all these things. But be the one who listens intently and I want to know God. I want to know about this life and jump and say, I I, I am going to identify with Christ. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to repent for my sins and surrender my life to Christ and be risen in this new life, desiring what is true. Which one are you? This is a non-emotional reasoning In verse 11, consider it, be dead, consider yourself dead to sin once and for all. By the way, when he says once and for all, it's not once and for all, it's once and for all time. Be dead to your sin and be alive to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't be, there's a third group out there that's trying to be like that Japanese soldier. You've been set free. Stop living in the jungles of the world. Move into your new life in Christ and enjoy that. If you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, the struggle is because you're pulling against him. Start just loving him. Follow him, obey him. If you love him, you'll obey him, Jesus said. John 15, I believe, 16, 17. It's in one of those three chapters. <laughs> I've kept you long because I didn't want to make this a two-part series because we got to get to next week, but partly because I want you to hear all of this in one setting to understand the two parts of what you've died to and what you are alive in, your identity and what that union means in Christ. Lord, I pray that if there are people here or listening or watching online that don't know you, that aren't saved, that, Lord, that you would prick their heart, make them alive to know that they need to put their faith in you and that you would save them this morning. It's not a work that we can do. It's a faith that you produce in us. To say we need you. And Lord I pray that if there's anyone here that's been living a life in sin. That they're not, they realize they're not living as a new man in Christ. They're not living loving you. That they're still focused on loving the world. That they would say I need to surrender. And find my life in you. Lord, that they would repent and believe in that, that they would believe, trusting, knowing, this is what you've done for me. This is my new life. This is my new identity. This is my, I, I jump past the green card and move to, the, I have a complete new life, new passport. I'm in Christ. I'm no longer living in the world. I'm no longer dead in sin. Lord, I pray that none of us here would be longing for that world, but that they would be in Christ, loving you with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. And that's why we love each other. That's why we worship you, because of your glory. May we acknowledge that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.